Hey everyone, welcome to the Sela podcast. This is Charlie, and today you're going to be hearing the teaching from our last all family gathering where we continued in our journey through the Sermon on the Mount with Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. This is a little section of the Sermon on the Mount uh, where Jesus gives us a prayer. We often call it the Lord's Prayer. And over the last few gatherings, we've been talking about primarily habits and how Jesus invites us into habits that form us into the type of kingdom people that he desires for us to be. So today we're talking about prayer and specifically how Jesus gives us this one particular prayer as something that we as a community are supposed to rally around and something that we are supposed to look to for strength and motivation and encouragement to press forward even when we face opposition and hardship and trials. So I'm going to break this down a little bit more for you, but to begin, I just want to read uh, the Lord's Prayer together. So if you may have this uh, memorized, uh, or it might be something that you could pull up, but I just want you to read through it with me if possible. Again, this is Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 9 through 13 to begin, and we'll also be looking at verses 14 and 15. So let's read this prayer together. Jesus says to his followers, This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If you're from Knoxville, and particularly if you are a fan of UT football, then you've heard the song called Rocky Top. Hey, Rocky Top is a song, it's, uh, it's not the, uh, the school fight song, but it's a song that has been adopted by UT football fans as a sort of rallying cry uh, for the team. It's, it's a song that's sung in celebration every time UT scores a touchdown. It's a song that every time it comes on uh, in, in a restaurant or a bar or wherever it might be where there's UT fans, people sing along at the top of their uh, voices. We played this at our last all family gathering, and you know half the room started singing every word uh, almost immediately. It's a song of celebration. It's a song that unites the UT football community around the team, and particularly at a time where University of Tennessee's football team is winning. It's a time where uh, there's a lot of hope and excitement, and this song is something that brings the community together and bonds them around uh, the volunteer football team. Um, We shared this, uh, again, at our all-family gathering and and just asked uh, the UT football fans in the room, what are some of the things that you're feeling when you hear this song? And, And things like unity, things like hope, celebration, um, 
uh, community came up. I mean, this song, it, it is incredibly significant for this community of people that surround UT football, despite having really nothing to do with the University of Tennessee or football in general, it has become uh, super important and super integral to uh, cheering for for the Tennessee Volunteers. Um, so th- this love for Rocky Top, it reveals a phenomenon that has actually existed forever, and that is that people often adopt poems or songs that rally and unite them around a common mission or movement. We call these anthems. This is true for a fan base of a sports team, but it's also true for more significant things. Nations will often choose revolutionary songs that point to a shared history or a shared set of values amongst their people. A few examples of this In France, the national anthem was a rallying cry for the citizens during the French Revolution when they revolted against the monarchy. The national anthem of Israel was a song that was sung in the concentration camps during World War II. The Ukrainian national anthem was a revolutionary song that was banned by the Soviet Union when Ukraine was under their control, and they banned it because they knew the power that anthems had to rally people and fuel a revolution. Social movements will often adopt poems or songs that encompass the values and the mission of the movement and become a rallying cry that drive the movement forward. In the 70s, it was the anti-war protests um, during the Vietnam War, the song For What It's Worth by Buffalo Springfield was a rallying cry for that protest movement. During the Civil Rights Movement, it was the hymn We Shall Overcome. And, and I want you to just listen to this short portion of a speech by Martin Luther King Jr. And listen to how he uses the hymn We Shall Over- Overcome to encourage and inspire people Uh, to press forward, even in the face of severe opposition and danger. There's a little song that we sing in our movement down in the South. I don't know if you've heard it, but it has become the theme song. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome. No, I join hands so often with students and others behind jail bars singing it. We shall overcome. Sometimes we've had tears in our eyes when we joined together to sing it, but we still decided to sing it. We shall overcome. No, before this victory is won, some will have to get thrown in jail some more, but we shall overcome. Don't worry about us. Before the victory is won, some of us will lose jobs, but we shall overcome. For the victories won, even some will have to face physical death. But if physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children from a permanent psychological death, then nothing shall be more redemptive. We shall overcome. Before the victories won, some will be misunderstood and called bad names and dismissed as rabble-rousers and agitators. But we shall overcome. And I'll tell you why. We shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We shall overcome because Carlisle... How powerful is that hymn to this this movement of people? He says, 
we'll sing it behind jail bars, r- regardless of if, if we're called names or, or face physical harm, or even if some of us are killed, we will sing, we shall overcome. And every time he says those words, we shall overcome, the, the people, they, they get louder and more excited and more motivated to press on towards their goal of justice. So what does this all have to do with Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount? Well, there's no question that Jesus was a revolutionary figure who intended to start a movement. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's Jesus laying out this radical way of living that he's inviting his kingdom community of people into. We've used the analogy throughout our our journey through the Sermon on the Mount of driving on the wrong side of the road. The way of life that Jesus is calling his followers to adopt is so countercultural, so revolutionary that it would be like all of us deciding to to all of a sudden drive on the left side of the road. And what would inevitably happen if we did that? There'd be collisions. There'd be accidents. We would inevitably collide with the rest of the world who is driving on the right side of the road. Jesus understands this. He understands that living in this way is going to be difficult, that there's going to be opposition. He understands that the movement as it grows and as it spreads is going to have to constantly be drawn back to and recentered on the core mission and values of the kingdom. So what does he do in order to call us back to those values? He gives us an anthem. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a poem that encompasses the core message of his kingdom movement. We call this the Lord's Prayer. Jesus gives this prayer to his followers and says, when you pray, pray like this. He doesn't say, you know, hey, here's one example of a way you can pray or, or um, you know, when you feel like it, pray this prayer. He, he says, when you pray. As a community of people, when you come together and you, you, you pray, pray this prayer. He clearly intends for this to be a prayer that his followers memorize and something that they use as a guide and a rallying cry to carry the movement forward. And we'll see that this prayer, it encompasses the core message, the core values of his kingdom movement. It's something that we're supposed to repeat and speak over one another uh, constantly. So let's take a closer look at this prayer that Jesus gives to us and tells us to pray. Like many of the Jewish prayers that were memorized and recited in Jesus' time, the Lord's Prayer is a poem. It's broken into two main sections with a short introduction. So if you have it in front of you and you look at this poem, where do you think the, the break is in, in the sections? Where, where's section one? Where's section two? So if you're looking at this poem, you'll see where Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the end of section one. And then section two begins, give us this day our daily bread. And we know that these are, are this is section one and section two, because section one is Uh, primarily focused on God. You'll see the word your repeated frequently throughout section one. 
And section two is primarily focused on the community of people that Jesus expects to internalize and speak this prayer. You'll notice words like us and are are repeated throughout section two. And notice there's no me or I in this prayer. Okay, it's very communal. And and that says a lot about what Jesus intends for us as we pray and and specifically for us as as we recite this prayer. It's supposed to be about community. It's supposed to be about this this fellowship of people that are surrounding his mission and vision and movement. And what's really interesting about this prayer is that many scholars believe that Jesus has intentionally structured this around what he says is the highest value of the kingdom. If we look later in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus, in response, says, love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And a second is like it, love your neighbor as yourselves. He then says all the other commands, everything else that you must do, can be summed up by these two. So in other words, if you want to know God's will for your life, it's as simple as love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And if we look at this poem, we'll see section one is about loving God and joining him in his mission, his work in the world. And section two is about how we express our love to those around us. And it stems from the love that we receive from God. So love God, love your neighbor. The two key values of Jesus's kingdom here on earth summed up in this poem that he gives us to pray. So Jesus gives his followers a poem that reflects the two main priorities of his kingdom. And he intends for us to take this and internalize it and recite it over and over day after day so that it constantly calls us back to and rallies us around uh, this, this kingdom movement that he is starting. So let's take a look just line by line. We'll go through and we'll, we'll just make some observations about Uh, what this poem says. So it begins again with a short introduction uh, that addresses God. Okay, this probably doesn't seem out of the ordinary to you, but there is one thing in here that is really important to point out, and that is the title that Jesus uses for God. Father, or in Aramaic, which is Jesus' spoken language, Abba. Okay, and Abba is more like saying Papa or Daddy rather than Father. It's a term of intimacy and adoration. And here's why this is important. I think for many of us, calling God Father is not out of the ordinary. But uh, outside of a few cases in the Psalms, Father uh, was not a very common way of referring to God before Jesus. Jesus was the one to adopt this term as the primary title for God. And then he invites his followers to refer to God in the same way. So it's not just him referring to God as father, but he he tells all of us, all his followers, uh, refer to God, think of God as your father. This is significant because what Jesus is doing is he's very intentionally painting a picture of who God is and, and who we are to God. 
And it's radically different than what many people in both Jesus's time and our time think of when when they think about God. Okay, God is not some angry, uncaring, distant deity. He is a present and attentive and loving father. And we should approach God like a like a small child would approach their dad, expecting to be loved, expecting to be accepted, expecting to be embraced and protected. And Jesus didn't have to start the prayer in this way. Instead, he but he chooses to start it by identifying God as our father. Okay, Jesus seems to think that if this prayer is going to be the rallying cry that drives the kingdom movement forward, then it's important that we are constantly reminding ourselves of who God is. He is our loving father and we are his beloved children. Our father in heaven. Beginning in section one, the first line says, hallowed be your name. Now that word hallowed, it's a carryover from the King James days. Uh, It means holy. Okay, so this line is saying essentially, may your name be holy. Okay, now holy means uh, something that is set apart or held with greater respect or greater esteem above all else. Now, uh, we know God is already holy. Okay, we can't Uh, make him more or less holy. So why would we need to pray that God's name be made holy? You know, for some reason, Jesus thinks that we need to regularly acknowledge that the way we think about God and the way that we speak about God, his name, uh, it, it doesn't it does it often does not reflect his true holiness okay he knows that throughout our day and throughout our lives we run into things that will take our focus off of god and even take the place of god in our hearts in our in our minds so we need regular a regular reminder regular prayer that in our lives and in the lives of others god would remain the object of our focus the object of our respect and worship The way I've been thinking about this is um, in the movie Aladdin. Uh, Aladdin and his monkey Abu, they go into the Cave of Wonders. And they go in there for one reason, and, and that is to get the lamp. Okay, the lamp is the true treasure. It's a treasure that is greater than and set apart all the from all the other treasures in the cave and they're told specifically don't touch any of the other treasures instead uh, go pursue the one treasure the one true treasure which is the lamp now if you've seen the movie you know that as soon as they get into the into the cave the monkey abu immediately gets distracted by all the gold and the gemstones and there's even in the cartoon his eyes become these big red gemstones and his focus gets taken off the lamp why they are there and placed on all these other things in the cave he eventually touches um, picks up some treasure and uh, it, it causes a lot of problems for them as they're trying to get this lamp and so I mean that's like us as we go through life uh, God is is the only thing that is holy, the only thing that is set apart and worthy of our respect and worship and honor. Uh, yet we are constantly getting distracted by all these other things in our lives and things that take our focus off of God and, and oftentimes things that take the place of God in our hearts. 
So what Jesus is saying is we need a constant reminder that God's name, the way we think about and the way that we speak about God would reflect his true holiness. Don't be like Abu. Okay. May our hearts and minds remain focused and devoted to God. Hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the last part of section one. If we turn all the way back to chapter four of the book of Matthew, right before the Sermon on the Mount, it says that Jesus is traveling around from town to town and he's proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God. Okay, proclaiming that the kingdom the kingdom of God has come is Jesus's main focus of his ministry. He's proclaiming the kingdom has come and he's teaching and demonstrating what that looks like. So we see that uh, people are being healed and demons are being cast out and, and outcasts are being brought into the family of God. This is, this is the practical implications of the kingdom arriving here on earth. Now, Jesus gives his uh, followers this prayer in which they are to regularly ask God to bring his kingdom to earth. Uh, this is interesting because that's exactly what Jesus came to do. So, so what is the significance of this? Why are we to continually pray that God's kingdom be brought to earth, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven? And I gave this visual at the All Family Gathering. Obviously, I can't do that over the podcast, but I'll try my best to describe it. So, you know, we often think of uh, the earth as this physical, uh, temporary reality. And heaven is this far off spiritual, eternal reality that we don't really know where it is. We don't know uh, much about it, but we know that we want to go there when our time here on earth is up. Um, so it's kind of this, it, 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 I call it often this life raft uh, theology, this idea that you know, our main purpose of our existence here on earth is to make it onto the life raft so that when our lives end or the world ends, we will be saved and we'll go off to this heavenly uh, spiritual realm. The problem is that's not how the Bible talks about heaven and earth. If you think that uh, about heaven and earth and you'll read small passages. You can take them out of context from the Bible. It seems to reinforce that idea. But if you take the Bible as as a whole without uh, that kind of preloaded idea about heaven and earth, then you'll see that the Bible actually talks very differently about these two spaces. Turn back to page one of the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God creates heaven and earth. And we see that those spaces in the beginning are not separate spaces. They're, they're actually overlapped. And they're overlapped in this particular place that is called the Garden of Eden or the Garden of Delight. And in this Garden of Delight, God uh, is present with and walks alongside and lives with his creation. And he, particularly humans, uh, he works alongside them to continue to create this world uh, that is home to both God and his created beings. Humans are God's image bearers. They are his co-workers who care for and cultivate this physical world that God has made. 
Uh, very quickly in the story of the Bible, humans decide that they'd rather do things apart from God. Like Abu, they get their eyes set on other things and they want to do things their own way and they want to grab hold of the things that seem appealing and seem right to them. And what this does is it creates a a split, this tension where heaven and earth are are being ripped apart. God's space and our space are are being separated. They were created to be united, but because of humans' rebellion against God, uh, they are now being separated. Now, we find out very quickly in the story of the Bible that that God does not allow them to be fully separated. There are places where heaven will overlap with earth. There are moments in time and 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 uh, in the lives of certain people where God's presence breaks in and engages with his creation. We see this in the lives of Abraham and in Moses. Moses, where he sees the burning bush and he walks towards it and God says, you are on holy ground. This is this is no longer your space. This is God's space. You know, remove your shoes and, and be in communion with God. In Exodus, we see that God gives his people a a consistent physical space where heaven and earth overlap. This is called the tabernacle. And God tells his people uh, very specifically how to build this space in order to reflect the the garden that God made at the beginning to dwell with his humans. And and so under certain circumstances and under certain situations, people can enter back into God's presence and be with God like they were in the garden in this space called the tabernacle and, and eventually in a more permanent space called the temple. Okay, finally, uh, Jesus shows up in the story. And uh, no longer is this intersection point of heaven and earth now confined to the four walls of the temple, but they are actually in this person of Jesus. He is this connection point, this bridge, this this collision of heaven and earth. And Jesus goes around and we see the implications of heaven colliding with earth. People are healed. Demons are cast out, right? Outcasts are brought into the family of God and included and 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 reminded of of their uh, God-given identity as his image bearers in this world. And we see that things are beginning to be restored to the way that they were in the beginning. Heaven is moving towards earth. The kingdom of God is spreading. Now, fast forward to the final pages of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, we are given a promise that one day all things would be restored to the way they were intended to be, that God would come and dwell with his creation once again, that heaven would fully overlap with earth. They would no longer be separated, but they would be one. This is what God intended for his creation in the first place. So the story of the Bible is not getting us out of earth to go to heaven. It's actually bringing heaven to earth, heaven moving towards earth. This is what we see in Jesus, and this is what we see God doing throughout history. So in this prayer, bring us back to the Lord's Prayer, in this prayer that Jesus gives us, what he's doing is he is inviting us to regularly speak this promise to God and to ourselves and to one another. In doing so, we are not only declaring our hope in this promise, but we are actually made more aware of how God is already doing this and how he is inviting us as his kingdom people to participate in this work of bringing heaven to earth. 
I mean, this is what why we are here. This is what it means to be following Jesus and being a part of his kingdom movement. It's to be a part of of the movement of heaven coming to earth. And so, of course, we're going to need to constantly remind ourselves that that is what we are doing and that is what this is all about. Jesus believes that the promise of this continual spread of his kingdom, even after Jesus uh, leaves his physical body, leaves us, the promise of this continual spread of the kingdom is what should drive us forward as we follow him. It's what the church is all about. This is, is, is to that the kingdom may come and that God's will may, may be done more and more every single day in our lives, in the lives of those around us and, and in our world. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We arrive at part two of the Lord's Prayer. And uh, we are given three sort of petitions that have to do with how we engage as the community of people with one another and with the world around us. I, 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 you could call this portion of the prayer the way we ought to live in relation to one another. Or these, you could say that these are the practical effects of the kingdom arriving in our lives. So we pray that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done in our lives. And this, this is the outcome. These are the effects of that actually happening. So Jesus begins by saying, give us this day our daily bread. You know, some of us uh, may have experienced times of real scarcity where your basic needs of food and shelter were day to day. Others may have never experienced this sort of daily need. And and I think we read this uh, differently based on our experience. But this was also the case for Jesus' disciples. We often think that Jesus was mostly talking to uh, people that were in poverty and, and, and really needed daily provision. Um, but that's not entirely true. Of course, you know, the fishermen were some of the poorest people in Jesus's world, and they were literally dependent on whether or not they caught fish that day. Um, uh, but he also had wealthy people in his inner circle. Tax collectors were known for being extremely wealthy. Um, they're basic needs were never in question. Matthew had tons of money. Okay, yet Jesus tells both the poor and the wealthy to pray daily for God's uh, provision. So, I mean, I think, I don't know how you've imagined this line, but I, I think throughout my life, I've imagined this as sort of meaning, meaning, you know, God, if I can't make it on my own today, like if I can't provide for myself under my own power, please help me out. But, but that's not what Jesus is getting at. Okay, Jesus is saying that everything you have comes from God and belongs to God, whether plenty or little. It is all God's. Uh, and we know that this is what Jesus meant because this is how his disciples understood this. Okay, if you look at Acts 4, you see a community of people that are living uh, in the reality that everything they have is God's and belong to God's because, I mean, you live differently if that's what you believe. Okay, if you believe that God gives you enough for each day, then you'd be much more willing to give away whatever excess you might have today because 
first of all, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. You have enough. So uh, give it away uh, to someone who might not have enough. And you don't need to save up for tomorrow because you believe that God will provide tomorrow for you as he has today. I mean, this is literally how the early followers of Jesus lived. We see in Acts 4 that it says, that they they shared everything they had so that there was not one needy person among them. Think about that. This trust in the daily provision of God led to a radical generosity that completely wiped out poverty in their community. How amazing is that? Like that they would live into this reality, that they, they would believe that God's provision was so true and, and so real that they would, they would just give abundantly of everything that they had. Now, we're going to hash out the implications of this in the coming weeks because Jesus is actually going to give us three opportunities to talk about how we deal with money and how we deal or how we do generosity. So we're not going to go into detail about this, but, but we're, we're going to circle back um, to what it means to live in light of this reality and live lives of radical generosity. Um, but a core practice of this kingdom movement that Jesus is starting is clearly radical generosity. And it stems from a belief that everything we have is from God and belongs to God. Give us this day our daily bread. The next line, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Another key practice in Jesus's kingdom is forgiveness. Now, what is forgiveness? Okay, it's it's not turning a blind eye to wrongdoing or injustices. It's not forgetting or dismissing the harm that someone has caused to you. Uh, Jesus is very clear. Forgiveness uh, is fully acknowledging the wrongdoing and the effects of the wrongdoing, but then releasing your right to get even, to get revenge, to retaliate, to harm that person in the same way or an equivalent way uh, to which you were harmed. Okay, it is saying forgiveness is saying to someone that I release you from having to try to make up for what you did to me, or I release you from having to be harmed in the same way that you harmed me. Okay, uh, this is what we, we mean, and I like this translation that we read because the idea of forgiving debts, okay, you are no longer indebted to me for what you did. I release you. Okay, now that person may still do something to try to move towards you and reconcile. Okay, reconciliation is, a, is, is something that involves two parties, but forgiveness is simply releasing someone from, from having to, to pay for what they've done. Okay, it's no longer holding them over their head. So, so Jesus, I mean, he thinks that this is an essential practice of life in the kingdom. So much so that he follows up this prayer by saying in verses 14 and 15, uh, you know, after this whole prayer with everything he addresses in it, he feels like forgiveness is the one thing he's going to need to uh, kind of clarify because it's such a hard thing for us to do. And he says, for if you forgive other people for their offenses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people, then your father will not forgive you of your offenses. Wow. Okay. That, that's a 
big, big statement, and we could talk forever about forgiveness and the implications of that. But what I think is important for us to understand in this case is that showing forgiveness to one another is so important to this kingdom movement that Jesus is starting that our participation is dependent on it. Okay, now Jesus, he doesn't say that forgiveness isn't hard. He doesn't say that we can't struggle or wrestle with this. Forgiveness may be the hardest thing that we ever have to do, yet it is so important. And it is so important because we all need this forgiveness for ourselves. We all need to be released from our debts, okay? And just as Jesus has freely offered that forgiveness to us, we as as his followers, as his representatives in this world must extend forgiveness to one another. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven those indebted to us. And the last line of the prayer Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, this is probably not something you've prayed often. Um, I know I haven't. Okay, this line, it alludes to a very important story from Jesus' life that I think helps us understand why he included it in this prayer and why we really need to pray this line. So this story comes from Matthew chapter 3. Jesus has this life-defining moment where he's baptized in the Jordan River. And immediately after this, he is led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God to be tempted. And in the wilderness, he faces three temptations. The first is to doubt God's provision. Okay, the Satan says, take these stones and turn them to bread. You're hungry. You haven't eaten for 40 days. Uh, uh, Maybe God won't provide for you. Why don't you provide for yourself? The first temptation is to doubt God's provision. The second temptation is to doubt his own identity as God's child. The Satan takes him to the top of the temple and says, throw yourself down off these walls. Surely if you're God's son, God will send angels to protect you and to save you. Uh, he, he is tempting Jesus to, to test God's faithfulness, to test the fact that God is actually a loving father who cares for and, and will protect him. So the second temptation is to doubt his own identity as God's child. And the third is to doubt the promise of the kingdom. The Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all these will be yours if you just bow down and worship me. In other words, reject your God and worship me alone and I will give you all these things. Well, the, the, the kingdom uh, encompassing the whole world is exactly what God has promised to do. So Jesus is right here is being tempted to doubt that promise and to take, uh, take that kingdom for himself. Okay, so what, as you hear those temptations, what's significant about each of these three is that they're all covered in the prayer. Each one of them is addressed in the prayer. We start by acknowledging that God is not some far off uncaring deity, but a compassionate and loving father, that we can approach him as children approach their dad. Okay, that's our identity as God's child. Then we declare that God's promise uh, that the kingdom has come and is coming and will one day come in fullness uh, is, is, 
it's his promise. It's a reminder that his promise is true and that it will come to be. And finally, we acknowledge that God's daily provision um, and his unceasing forgiveness is something that should drive us towards radical generosity and radical forgiveness towards others, that, that God's provision is true and it's good and that, that we can receive his provision. So in this prayer, uh, the three temptations that Jesus, is fa- that Jesus faces, and I would argue the three temptations that all our temptations and struggles in life will tie back to, God's provision, our identity as a child, and God's promise, are the three things that, that uh, Jesus knows that we will face in this life. And so how amazing is it that Jesus ends his kingdom anthem in this way? He knows the very things that we are supposed to declare regularly and rally around as a community will be the things that the enemy will try to get us to doubt. Our identity as God's children, God's daily provision for our every need, and God's promise of his kingdom fully established here on earth. So we pray that God would keep us from being tempted to doubt those things. And and when we do fall into doubt, which we all do in our lives, we pray that God would deliver us and protect us and remind us of his love and remind us of his provision and remind us of his promise. And that's the end of the prayer. And, and I don't know about you, but I feel like we desperately need this. Okay, this, this prayer, this anthem has not been an integral part to my walk with Jesus, but it, it needs to be. Okay, we need to speak this over ourselves and over one another every single day. I need to wake up every morning and re- be reminded of these truths. I need to remind myself of these truths when I face opposition and when I face doubt, when, when the doubt creeps in and the promises of God uh, seem dim in my life, I need to remind myself of these things. So when we're faced with, with deep brokenness and pain in this world, we can pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. When we face our own doubts and our own questions in life, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. When we face the injustices and the, imp- the oppression and the unimaginable evil that humans do to one another, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. And these are not empty words. It's not prayer with no action, but just like any anthem or rallying cry, this prayer is something that drives us into action. We pray your kingdom come and then we live like the kingdom is already here. We pray your kingdom come and then we love others fiercely and unconditionally. We pray your kingdom come and then we give generously. We pray your kingdom come and then we forgive over and over and over again. We pray your kingdom come and then we live like it is here. May this prayer be our anthem that drives us into further participation into God's kingdom. So I just encourage you uh, as you're listening to this to, to try this. Um, Write it on a note card, put it beside your bed, and every morning when you wake up, pray this prayer line by line, deep breaths, slowly meditate on the words that Jesus gives us. 
throughout your day. Keep it in your pocket. Throughout your day, remind yourself of these words. Speak this over your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ when you come into contact with them. Uh, pray this as a community, your microchurch or, or whatever else. Pray this with your family. And, and you can pray other things too. That, that's absolutely fine. Jesus did as well. Uh, but this prayer is supposed to hold a particular place in our lives. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's supposed to be a piece of our prayer lives, but it's also supposed to be something that rallies us and encourage us, encourages us and drives us further into God's mission as we walk with Jesus every single day of our lives. So may we pray this prayer together. Um, in close, and may we go about our lives in light of the promises of God that are in this prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name, amen.